Good morning. Today's reading is from 2 Peter 1, verses 7 through 11. In godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right. Good morning, everybody. Are we good? Yeah. Oh, good. Glad. Glad to hear it. I just felt like we connected there for a moment. Um, my name is Tommy. Um, I'm the pastor, and uh, next week I'm teaching a class called Watermark 301. It's going to be in the orange room, down this hall, down that hall, all the way to the back. It's kind of a small little, little chapel area. Um, uh, I've taught two classes before. Um, Watermark 101 is sort of our membership class. Watermark 201 is about sort of who we are, how we think church should work, and, and what we think the community is about. It's called Truth, Beauty, Community, and Motion. This one is called Engagement. It's not about dating. Um, it's not about marriage at all, for that matter. Um, it's about um, what does a healthy spiritual life look like? Um, as a follower of Jesus, how should you bathe your day in, in prayer and supplication with God? How do you keep that sort of um, open channel to God throughout the day um, to remind yourself that you are a are, are spiritual being um, here in this world, having this sort of human experience, if you will. Uh, and um, so we're going to talk about all the different ways that people hear from God, the ways that people are wired to hear from God, and, and how we are all sort of uniquely um, designed to hear from God in different ways. And we're going to open all those up and um, hopefully uh, gain some understanding and some healthy life rituals of what a day, a week, a month, and like a, a spiritual year should look like. So um, I think it's, it's limited to like 50 or 55 people. Um, and it fills up fast because we're also having barbecue. Um, and that tends to be a good draw. Most people don't care what I have to say. There's barbecue. And so they're like, yes, I'm in. Um, and so I think there's some slots open. Last time we did it, we had like 65 people. We trimmed it back a little bit because that was a lot of people. So if you're interested in that, hop on the city. Um, it's right there in the announcements somewhere. It's called Watermark 301. So you can sign up there. All right. Um, <clears throat> let's pray. And let's, uh, yeah, let's do it. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for everything that you are doing for us. Thank you for bringing our people together and giving us um, a purpose and an identity. And it's found in you. And we realize that. And so help us to gain some understanding from these times together as we come together as your body to hear from you and to speak words of, of encouragement and love and repentance to each other. Um, continue to make us whole, heal us. Lots of heavy burdens are brought into a place like this. Um, lighten those burdens. Help us to lay them at your feet. Um, knowing that uh, your hope is real and, and, and the burden that you are laying on us is not heavy. It's very, very light. That's easy. Um, so help us to be very present here this morning and not distracted by the things of the week. Help us to um, get a piece of the puzzle that we're missing, that we need. Help us to uh, be filled with joy 
encourage us in our time together. Speak through me. Allow me to remember the things I've studied and speak clearly. And, and uh, thank you, God. We love you. In your name, amen. So um, we've come to the end of this sort of this section where um, Peter has sort of, I've been calling it like a, like a sort of a ladder, like a spiritual ladder. Um, it's sort of the path of sanctification. If you're not familiar with all these churchy terms, sanctification is us becoming what we have been declared to be. It's not real complicated. God looks at you and says, I declare you holy. You know you're not. And you start becoming through the work of his spirit and his work in your life and the gospel as you fully understand the teachings of Jesus. You become holy. Um, holy is... Um, Holy is the Greek word hagios. It means different. You become different. You become not grounded in the things of this world. You become like God, different in the way that grounded in the things that he's grounded in. Love, grace, forgiveness, mercy, salvation, um, all of these things. So he's been building this ladder that starts in one place, and it, and it starts with faith around Jesus, and it sort of builds up and up and up. Um, and I'm going to skip verse 7 and come back to it. We're going to start at verse 8 here. And he says this, uh, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. So um, you may not have been here the last few weeks, and so you may need a quick crash course on what he's talking about, these qualities. What are these qualities? Well, it started with faith, contemplating the words of Jesus and saying, that, that is true. That, that lines up with my experience of this world. That when you pour yourself out for other people, um, when you love other people, it changes them. And the story of the crucifixion of Jesus is that God came in the form of a man and poured himself out, his love for you, so that you could be reconciled to God. And his death and burial and his resurrection is a proclamation of hope, that all the things that are broken can be fixed and will be fixed. All the things that are ruined can be mended. Everything you have lost, you will get back. That is how the ancient Jews kind of looked at this thing, that one day there would be this moment of resurrection and God would come and judge the world and fix things. Um, And so faith is the idea that the message of Jesus is healing, that it can do good things. And the second word um, that it gave us as we we sort of move up this ladder is the word erite. It's it's the word that, uh, for virtue, it's the word that uh, sort of says, focus on the absolute best possible thing that could happen from all of this. If the gospel was lived out in the world around you, what would this look like? Well, um, the captives would be set free, and the broken would be healed, and the dead would be resurrected. All of this amazing stuff. And so Arete is the the absolute best um, picture of what could happen if the gospel really takes root in the hearts and lives of the people around us. And so we focus on that, and then it says add add to that. We add knowledge. Um, As you're doing these things, as you're taking part in the Arete of God, the best possible versions of Christianity that there is. Um, you also study and you learn and you grow and you daily sort of walk closer and closer to God in the knowledge of him. Um, and then it moves into other things like self-control. Um, as you are serving God, you'll notice the parts of your life that you struggled with, your addictions, your bad habits, that you do them less and less. You'll find that you are changing and that your habits are changing. Um, because it's, it's natural. As you, for instance, work to free women from the sex trade, you will find you no longer have a desire to look at pornography because you understand where it comes from and what it does. And so self-control is a natural progression of the gospel. Um, and then it moves into other things. That the last word that it really gave us was the word eusebeia, which means, um, it basically means to look in two directions at once. It's the word for godliness. Um, 
And that means you get to a point where everything that you do, you consider God and people. You consider, well, as I make this decision, what, what would God, what would be the godly thing to do? Okay, now what would be the loving thing to do? And these things come together and they meet. And your decisions are not just centered on God because that, be, that can become pharisaical. You can say, well, this is what God wants me to do. And you can actually become unloving as you grow closer to God. That's insane. And so what happens is um, other people go the other direction and they start to say, well, um, I'm not really concerned with what God says. I'm concerned with what's the best for people. And it becomes this very ungodly thing. And so the word yusabea, the word for godliness, is looking at both and bringing them together and understanding that your, your decisions have to be, that every decision you make, even for people, has to be loving and is sacred and is spiritual. That every moment is a spiritual moment. Every decision you make is spiritual. And so <clears throat> it brings us to this point. There are two more things that we didn't cover yet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burn through them real fast, and we're going to keep moving. Um, so with godliness, that's Eusebea. And then we come into the word with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection um, is the word Philadelphia, um, city of brotherly love. Uh, and it's, it means sort of love as family. It's like equalizing love. It's love when you look around other people. You, as you practice godliness, Eusebea, looking both places, both directions at once, you come to a place where you start looking at people and you realize we are in the same boat. We are not different. All of mankind is kind of equal and the same. And God looks at us as his children that he desperately loves and wants to draw to himself. That we are all on the same platform. And we are all in need of salvation. So um, that's what the idea of brotherly affection is. It's looking at people as if you are in the same boat as them, as your brothers, coming from the same place. And the next word he uses is, so it's brotherly affection with love. Now that could sound redundant, and so you open up the, the Greek and you understand there's 20 like, different words, ideas for like love. And so um, the one that's used here is the word agape, which means basically love without the qualifiers and without the reason. Um, agape is different. It's the last step on the ladder. This is where you arrive when the gospel fully takes root in your heart. The teachings of Christ and the hope of resurrection, when it takes root inside of you. It ends with agape. Agape is the application of grace. It's taking the grace God has given to you and giving it freely, pouring it out with other people. Agape doesn't love somebody because they're worthy. Agape makes somebody worthy through the love that you pour upon them. It actually does something to them. It makes them worthy. Agape doesn't love somebody because they are beautiful. Agape, when it is poured out on people, makes them beautiful. It grows people into very beautiful, holy people. When you love someone this way, you are, um, you are pulling them towards this amazing future. There is love because, there is love in order to, there is love for the purpose of, and then there is love, period. No qualifiers. Love. That's it. Not for any other reason than love. Um, agape doesn't need a reason. It's the word used to describe God's love for us. Tons of times in scriptures. God loves you, not because of anything you bring to the table, not because it's beneficial to him in any way to love you, but because you're his children. And so he loves you. This is agape. Now, um, let's go to the next, uh, next sort of half of this verse. So I'm going to start here in verse 8 again. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, the ones that go from faith and end in agape and how you look at people, it's the renewing of your mind. If they are yours and they are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Now, um, 
I'm not touching anything anymore. I'm just, I was just, I just touched that. Um, so tons of you are probably in what I would, I, maybe you would describe as sort of a placeholder job in your life or time in your life where you're, you have plans, you're heading towards something. You're, one day I'm going to start a nonprofit, I'm going to change the world. One day I'm going to go overseas and change the world. One day I'm going to do this and change the world. I'm going to do some work and it's going to change the world. Um, all, everyone in their 20s thinks they're going to. They get to their 30s, they're like, well, I can change, change myself, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Um, and you, so you describe what you are right now in, uh, it's, it usually starts like this. I'm just this. I'm just a student. I'm just a mechanic. I'm just a cook. I'm just a waitress. I'm just a mom. I'm just um, a landscaper. I'm just, 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 just. And in other words, um, this isn't the life-changing, world-changing thing I'm going to do. This is leading up to that. This is just this. And we diminish it. Um, as if you get up every day and you go to work and you come home, or you get up every day and you, you go through the difficult time, and you get to the end of the day and you say, um, this isn't even making a difference. I'm waiting for something else to make a difference because this doesn't make a difference. Nothing I'm doing right now has real meaning and purpose. We, as human beings, desperately have this desire for meaning and purpose in life day to day to day. And we so often feel like what I'm doing right now is just meaningless, it's unfruitful, it's ineffective in the eternal realm and for the kingdom. So, um, Peter says, if this is your journey, if the gospel has taken root in your heart and has led you to this place of agape, if these qualities are present in your heart and growing, how could you not be effective? How could this not make a difference in the world around you for eternal things, to bring people to the knowledge of Christ? And the word knowledge is not just the knowledge, it's not just knowing, it's actually, it's not gnosis, it's epigenosis. It's the taking part in. What you are doing, if you are living out these qualities and they are growing in you, is actually going to bring people to the active taking part in and knowledge of what Jesus is doing in the world. And you say, yeah, but I'm just stocking shelves. I'm not doing anything meaningful. No. If these things are growing you, it will make eternal difference and significance. So let's, how does this work? Well, um, let's change gears. Let's imagine that you have a relationship with someone. Um, And you do, by the way. Um, You have a relationship with someone, maybe a spouse, a a parent, a child, a coworker, a boss, a neighbor. um, And you are fully aware of this person's shortcomings. Fully aware. They're glaring. They're obvious. They're just a screw-up. And they're just always making mistakes and failing and getting on your last little nerve. Um, And all of the ways that you wish they were different, all of the ways that they regularly fail you and let you down again and again and again, and all of the things that you wish they were are obvious. And so it puts you in a really awkward position because if you go to them and you tell them, I've made a list of your problems. Please, for the love of everything that is good and holy, read this list and change. Now, they read these things and they're probably going to get super mad um, and super defensive. But let's just say, for the sake of fun, that they read them and they say, oh, my bad. I didn't even know. And so then they change. They actually start doing these things. 
Now you're in another awkward position because now when they do these things, they change. and they're not, You're not sure if they're actually doing it because they love you or because they, they don't want to get yelled at again. They don't want you to get mad at them. And they don't... Whatever. And so you always have in the back of your head, there's never this um, appreciation. There's always this like, huh. Is he washing the dishes because he loves me or because he's scared of me? <laughs> um, and this is how the thought process usually goes, that you can't redeem that. That's just what happens. Or there's another thing that could happen. Um, you could hide the list. It's in your brain. It's there. And you could start treating them according to how they act. Um, when they start acting good, you could draw near to them and say, yes, good. And you just, you know, you're good, good dog, good dog. Um, and you're sort of giving them affirmation. And when they fail and they're acting up again, you kind of turn away and you're just, no, mm-mm, not going to be part of this. You're in the doghouse. And, and so it becomes this sort of conditional love where when they act a certain way, you draw near. When they act a certain way, you push away. And, and this is typically what happens. This is human relationship. Your love becomes a conditional. It has not become agape. That is the opposite of agape. So, what if you treated that person who always disappoints you as if they were already what you wish that they were? What would that be like? What if you agape them exactly like they are today with all of the flaws? What if you poured love upon them as if they were lovely and beautiful and holy and perfect and everything that you ever wanted? What if you just loved them as if they were that? If you were them and somebody did that to you, how would you respond? What would be more motivating? Being reminded of all your failures and being asked to change? or being loved as if you were already a great person, what would motivate you to change more? Well, the answer is simple. This is how sanctification works. This is what causes people to change. This is what causes followers of Jesus to become more and more Christ-like over time as the gospel takes root in their heart and God keeps pouring his love upon them and they become aware of just how much God loves them. It's convicting and it's heavy and it causes you to respond in ways that you never would before and, and you start changing. Not because you're terrified of God. Not because you're terrified of the wrath of God being leveled upon you so you're gonna get crushed. But because there's a God who absolutely, infinitely loves you and you feel unworthy. And so you begin to change. And you look back, and James says, over time, you can see that you have changed. This is how agape works. This is what it is. And Peter says, so you're stuck in the I'm just, you're just a mechanic or a waitress or a mom or whatever. You're just that. If these things are taking root in your life and growing, how could you not make a difference? for the eternal kingdom of God? How could the kingdom of God not be established in the hearts and minds of the people around you? How could you ever think that you are unfruitful or ineffective? That's impossible because agape changes people. Agape brings people and draws them into a future that is good. Agape changes people and brings them to new places. And so if these things are in you and they are growing, you start to realize the commission on your life is not about your job. It's not about how you make your money. It's not about your name on the corporation. It's not about anything other than day by day, 
pouring out yourself in love for the people around you so that it brings them into a completely new future. This is how people change. Now, Peter has a few more things to say about this. So he said, here's what happens if you have these things and they are growing. If these qualities are there and they're growing, these are the good things that happen. So let's look at the other side. In verse 9, he says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. He's so nearsighted that he's blind. So um, this is the flip side of the coin. This is the place where most of us dwell most of the time. Um, Right now, you can only see what is there in front of you. So I'm, I have more drawings. They all look the same. Every week, it's a dude standing on a line between two points. <laughs> Everything in my mind looks like this. But the line represents different things every time, so chill out. All right? Um, when you look at people today, you had a run-in maybe with somebody at the store that was just rude to you. Um, you passed a homeless man on the street. You, somebody was um, really happy and joyful and nice to you. Somebody, all these interactions, somebody you've known for about five years now, maybe somebody you've known for five months, and you have an image of them in your mind, and maybe you've made up your mind that they are terrible people and you disdain them. When you behave like this and when you look at people like this, you are being what Peter calls nearsighted. You are thinking of this person and the time period that you interacted with them and how you knew them here. And you are judging them based on what you see here. There are people that you saw do something really kind for a stranger. And you don't know other people. You don't know other persons in this sort of interaction. But you, it was good. It was loving. And you say, wow, that's a, that's a good person. You saw them for this amount of time. I guarantee you there, was someone, there is someone else in their life that looks at them and says, they are just the worst person I know. I guarantee it. Why? Because they saw a different segment of their life. And when you look at people like this, Peter says you are being nearsighted. In other words, you are forgetting two very important things. You are first off forgetting their history, where they came from, what brought them to this place, where they were born, the family they grew up in. Were they impoverished? Were they rich? Were they born into an oppressive society or a flourishing economy? What is the history that brought them to where they are? What kind of suffering and loss and pain and... What have they had to overcome to bring them to this place where they are? There's a lot more to it than these two points in time that you knew this person. And then you're also ignoring the other side, their future. What is their future going to be? And now that you are there interacting with them, what part do you play in shaping that? We never think about this. We, talk, we look at people and we say, well, that person's going to end up like this. Well, hold on. The fact that you can talk about that person means that you are there in their presence. You are now a figure in their life and you play a part in shaping this future. To have disdain for people is to be nearsighted. To look at them now in this period of time and forgetting about the fact that things happened and forgetting about the fact that they have a future that could be different. And a lot of it kind of depends on you. And Peter says, if these qualities are not in your life and they're not growing, if you are not getting to a place where you can eventually show agape, life-changing, future-pulling love in people's lives, then you are nearsighted and you are ignoring the potential that this person has and then the part that you play in that because you are just there. And that's heavy. 
Now, um, he doesn't stop there. I underlined another part of this verse. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. You can't see their past, and you can't see their future. You're ignoring it all. Um, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So, oh, man, you're not just blind about their past and their future. You're blind about your own. Have you forgotten that when Jesus found you, this was you, and you had a bad history? He's actually the only one that knows. You had a really bad history. He knows all of the things that led you to where you are. He knows even to the point where he met you, what you were actively involved in, the point where you like sort of understood that there is a God and he revealed himself to you in that moment. Oh man, it wasn't pretty. And you know what he did? Got rid of that. He says, I'm not going to look at where you come from. I'm going to look at your future and I'm going to pour out agape onto you and I'm going to pull you into a different future than you would have been on had I not drawn you in. And it's agape and it pulls you somewhere different. And so Paul actually writes about this to the church in Rome. He writes to them and he says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were still rebels and terrible people, and while you were still actively warring against the good in this world and whatever capacity you were taking part in the destruction of the world around us through your, through your choices that were not godly, while you were still doing that, Christ poured out himself for you in a sheer act of infinite love with no thought to what you had done already. It was all about your future. He wanted to pull you into something better. And then he writes to the church in Corinth and he says, for consider your calling. Consider your calling as a way of saying, think of who you were when you were called. Picture yourself. Go back to that day when you realize the love of God and the the depth and the breadth of what he's offering you. Um, Brothers, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. You were not the kind of person that a king takes into his house and says, hey, I'm going to give you all my stuff. You are not that person. And he says, Peter says, when we treat people with disdain, when these qualities are not in us, when we are not showing people agape, we are short-sighted. We have forgotten what was done for us. We just forgot what was done for us. Maybe we didn't even forget. Maybe we're just blind to it. Maybe we're just choosing not to see it. You treat somebody like you're better than them? I'm really glad God didn't treat you that way. What has been poured out on you should be coming out of your hands and your mouth and and your fingertips. That's how you should act in this world. That's what Peter says. And so then we get to verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Now, um, so we have some theological buzzwords here, obviously. Election. Um, If you go to any sort of school of divinity, you're going to find a lot of people debating Election, predestination, free will, choice. Did God choose us or did we choose him? And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. God's like, hey guys, I thought I told you to go out and love people. Hold on, we're not done. We're still debating this. Hold on. We're going to figure this out. Any day now. It's only been 2,000 years. We're going to figure this out like now. Um, and so there's all these debates about election and whatever. Um, I'm not reformed. Um, I went through a small stint where I was like, reformed theology? No, not reformed theology. Um, I did that with a lot, a lot of different theologies, by the way. Um, and so, but there's something I know. There's some very important things that I understand. I didn't choose where I was born. 
I didn't choose the family I'd be born into. That was God's choice. I did not choose the people that were going to walk into my life and pour themselves out for me. I did not choose the things that I would go through that would shape me. I did not choose um, to become the pastor of a church. I never wanted to become a pastor of a church. Like, there's so many things that I didn't choose that happened to me um, that God just, I understand election. God saying, you, this. You, here. You, here. You. God's choice. I back that. I get it. Um, now, um, I know it's a lot more than that. You reform guys are like, that's not what it means. I know, I know. Relax, chill. Um, but I do believe there is a way of describing the idea of, uh, at least, a, at least a, a small idea of election um, that I would argue that all Christians would kind of fully agree upon. And I can best describe it in terms of, I guess, um, human relationships. When you confess your love to somebody, it's risky, is it not? What could happen? Well, that person could receive what you're saying. You're in love with me, huh? Well, you're not um, good-looking enough. You're not attractive enough. You're not wealthy enough. You don't dress nice. You're not different enough. You're not just, you're not all of these, all of these things that I, that I want. You're not what I want. And the pain of that is real. People feel that every day. You give somebody love, and they take it, and they throw it back. And they say, no thanks. Now, election tells us that when you come to God and you offer your love, that he looks at you and he says, I have been loving you since the day you were born. I am so glad you're here. I've been trying to get a hold of you. I've been calling your name. I've been drawing you in since the day that your parents dreamed you up. I, since before you existed, I knew you were going to be here and I was madly in love with you and I've been here Yes, I have chosen you. Of course I've chosen you. Before you chose me. I have always chosen you. I am here. I've been waiting for you to choose me. And so this is, this is I think, a really great way to understand this. And now, so, um, let's look at some of the words here. So he says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Now, I'm reading from the ESV. ESV is a heavily kind of Reformed Translation: A lot of the Reformed preachers will, will, will preach from the ESV because of, of um, the writers, the, the translators of it were absolutely Reformed, and, and typically guys who aren't Reformed read from other things, the um, NIV, other things. But um, I appreciate this translation. I appreciate Reformed traditions, um, and I have a lot of Reformed friends. I love this translation. Um, there's some words in here that you can you can look at and you can see kind of the slant, the lean towards the Reformed tradition, towards the Calvinist tradition, uh, the word confirm your calling and election. Um, but let me open up the word confirm and make it more sort of applicable to all of us. The word confirm is the word bebeos, and it means steadfast. So um, Peter's basically, in some other translations, you're going to see, be steadfast in sort of, if I may loosely translate this, be steadfast and the fact that knowing that God absolutely loves you and has always chosen you, you can be steadfast in the love of God. The, the word steadfast um, has the, the, the word um, confirm, bebeos, steadfast, is, has the idea of your, of your feet being planted on stone, not moving. Now, he adds to this and sort of does a play on words here with the second half of the verse, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, uh, sometimes people take this uh, to mean um, eternal security, again, in the, in the Reformed tradition. 
Um, and the idea that, yeah, you know, once saved, always saved, no one can pluck you out of my hand. That's not actually what this verse is talking about. Not that I don't believe that, but that's not what this verse is talking about. Um, at least to me. Let's debate, whatever. Um, the word fall is actually the word um, patio. And it means a stumble, a foot striking a stone. So there's two words that absolutely connect. There is your feet being on stone, planted on stone. And then there is your foot striking a stone and you falling. It's not about salvation. It's about struggling with the idea with what I have just done. Does God still love me? And Peter says, if you are taking part, if these things are part of your life and they are growing in you and you are showing people agape and you are taking part in the renewal of all things and the kingdom growing in the lives and hearts of the people around you, you will always be steadfast in the idea that God loves you, even when you fail. You will never stumble over the thought of whether or not God loves you. Because as you're doing this, you will see people change. And you will know that you changed. And that it's obvious that God has been pouring out his love on you. And it's really quite beautiful. And it's not some complicated theological thing. It's, it's you're just not going to struggle with the idea that God loves you. You're going you're gonna to always, always know that you are desperately loved by God. So, if you practice these qualities, you're not going to struggle with that. And then he ends sort of with verse 11 here. It says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, In this way, in the way of agape, of God pouring out his grace and love upon you and changing you and bringing you into a new future, this is how people get into the kingdom of heaven. This is how people come to us saving understanding and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's his grace. It's his love. It's his agape that he pours out on you. And so you must be pouring it out on other people because agape opens doors to eternal things. And so we are going to take communion. Um, our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and um, prepare the elements for, for us. Um, now, as we take communion today... Um, I think we should maybe contemplate and think about, I'm going to say, that person that you had on your mind when we were talking about the relationship with somebody whose um, shortcomings were obvious. You had somebody in your mind. Right now, you're trying to think of somebody else. (laughs) Stop it. Go back to that person. And I want to pray about that person. I want all of us to sort of pray together. Um... God, help me to show agape to this person. Help me not to demand their change anymore, but instead to love them as if they are already what I, what I wish they were. And it's not going to happen quickly. But as they start to see and understand that, oh, this person loves me. Why would I treat them like this? Why am I rejecting their help and their thoughts? They absolutely love me we can pull these people into new futures. It's the power of God working through you. His love poured out on you. Your, lo- your receiving of God's love and pouring it out on other people. That's the power of God to change the hearts and minds of the people around us. And so let's pray about that person and let's say, God, uh, help me to just try to do this different. And let's pray while we're at it that these things will grow in us. That we will start to see that our lives are not ineffective. They're not a waste. They're not useless that every decision that we make can be very much bathed in the sacred.
And then we'll take communion, shall we? Um, the bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for all of us. The wine is the blood of Christ spilled for all of us. It's, it's, it's the thing that, that all Christians affirm is the salvation of the world. Perfect love, body and the blood of Christ being poured out for the sins of the world, for their healing. So let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you the ways that you love us and the ways that you're drawing us into a new future and uh, change our hearts, change our lives. Help us to keep these things in mind that when we see people for a very finite period of time, that is not the definition of that person. They have a past and they have a future. Help us to be people who are not nearsighted. Help us to understand that you want to draw them to yourself that they have a future and that they can be loved into your kingdom. We love you, Father. Be with us now as we take communion. Help us to um, rightfully repent of of the ways we have um, showed disdain for people and help us to change. We love you, God, in your name. Amen. Take some time and uh, talk to Jesus.